to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. Today is so interesting. We will talk to Vuzi Tembekwayo now. We'll talk about Donald Trump later. I have to be very clear. We're not talking to Donald Trump. We'll talk about him, okay, and about his foreign policy in particular. Uh, that's the big picture coming up from 9 o'clock. So looking forward to that. Uh, as for now, as always, we have a big hitter for one hour in the studio for the first hour of the show. And uh, today it's the turn of Vuzi Tembekwayo to come in. We haven't chatted in a while. Good, t- good talking to you. When I last introduced you, I probably said the, the rock star public speaking. Uh, do I, does the same apply or, or have you now moved on with your career exponentially? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a whole lot of stuff, right? So as you know, I run, I run a venture capital fund, mm. the, one of the fastest growing VC funds in the continent. Uh, my speaking career is still going, so I'm doing really great work. I've just come back from tour. I was in Europe, so I did uh, Paris, I did Luxembourg, I did Munich in Germany. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I I I'm I'm eternally blessed by God to be able to occupy many spaces, and 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 in, and in doing just that, and, and we we describe you as tonight's big hitter. So we're going to pick your brain on a whole range of issues. Right. When you do these these particularly these these overseas tours, right? Uh, speaking, right? Now now you've got a great presence. I've had the pleasure of working with you. Uh, you've got a great voice, and we know all of that. But but that would mean nothing if the content is not right. What are the people abroad? What do they want to hear from you? It's a variation of messages. My 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 specific expertise is on how do you build an exponential organization in linear markets. Mm-hmm. What that means very simply is how do you get an organization that outperforms its situation? That's regardless of whether it's a private or public sector organization. So in private sector, you'd say, how do you build a business that is more profitable than the average business in its market or its competitors? In the public sector, it'd be about how do you develop a system of thinking that enables public sector managers and leaders to build teams that deliver exponential value? Uh, So think, for instance, about... Uh, very recently, I went to the bank, and the bank was doing some KYC, mm-hmm. and the bank took my fingerprints because they were doing some KYC for me. Not too long ago, I had to get a new passport because I've, I've, you know, I run out of passports fairly frequently, and the Department of Home Affairs sent me somewhere else to get the passport, to get my fingerprints done, and get the pictures done, and then come to the Department of Home Affairs. The bank can do pictures and fingerprints Absolutely. and the document. Mm-hmm. Why did the Department of Home Affairs have to send me elsewhere? So exponential thinking. So, so they, they did not send you to the bank? No, 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 okay. no, no. That's interesting. <laughs> so, so exponential thinking. And that, is, by the way, is interesting. That it's, it's interesting that you add that because even the Department of Home Affairs today will send you to the bank to get some documentation done. So exponential thinking is the public sector leader that says, hold on, if we're stopping Ashraf Ghada on the road to check if his license plate is up to date, how come we don't check his insurance? Because that happens in the U.S. They'll check your, tr- the ins- check your the insurance. Hog, yeah. They'll check your car. They'll check if you have any tickets anywhere in the country that's outstanding. They'll check this, the state of the car. They'll, they'll check a whole host of things in a single stop. Here, we only check the one thing. So exponential thinking is the public sector leader that looks at that and goes, this problem is broken, and here's how we fix it. So, so let me therefore, uh, so, so you get asked, and you speak a lot about that, right? Yeah, yeah. Let me therefore ask you about, and I'll borrow from, from this, this champion South Africa project that I'm involved in. I'm glad that you support it. I love that, it, by right? the way. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and we have plans now to become far more exponential, having done a lot of testing in the last year or so. But I'm going to borrow from that, which is, what does South Africa need to do now to move from, from this country that is sort of languishing as a mid-table nation yeah. 
to yeah. to grow exponentially. Yeah. And I'm borrowing from your book as well, of course, right? So yeah. that we will become this this champion nation. So what we learned when we did the research project for the Magna Carta of Exponentiality, which is mm. the book, is that it actually all rests on leadership. So the first thing South Africa has to do, mm-hmm. and this is the challenge for the South African citizen, is we've got to put leaders in place who understand what exponentiality means. Now, this is not a a particularly popular point, but what it means for you and I is we've got to vote for people in public service who are exponential thinkers, not people who associate with us on a party political line, whatever that means. It means for private sector organizations, we've got to insist that the boards put in place leaders who will not pull a stand off. So that's the first thing mm, you've got to do. Mm, you've mm. got to get the right so on, on both leaders. levels, private 100%. and then and then in, in the political space. 100%. So the first thing we've got to do, we've got to get the leaders right. The second how, thing... How do, how do, okay, let's stay with that. How do we get the leaders right? Well, the first... Because what we, I'm saying, let's say we say we agree. Yeah. Okay, so we, we're yeah. sitting in this boardroom of SA Inc. right now making decisions. Yeah, right. Yeah. We want to now get political leaders. We're not party, uh, you know, a party partisan in that sure, case, right? Sure. But we'll get the right people Who's going to ever agree with us? It's actually very simple. The, the, fin- the Finnish have done it. The Canadians more recently. The, 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 the Parisians, uh, the French even just a bit more recently than the, the Canadians. And here's what you've actually got to do. You've got to make it okay for people who are not necessarily party affiliated to run for public office. Here, in South Africa, you've got to go through a system of party politics and be graded by that system of party party politics, go through a meritocracy of party politics, if you want to call it a meritocracy, to get to the top to be elected. In the places I've spoken about, that's not necessarily the case. So, for instance, Emmanuel Lacan was not the most popular leader in his own party, but the citizens said, this is the guy we want. So you've, you've, got, to, you've got to put in place as citizens a system where you say, we're going to vote for the person we want, not the party we want. If the party serves us the wrong person, then the party must know it runs the risk of us not voting for them. Is, isn't isn't the nicer way than to say, let's just drop all party allegiances. Let's just drop the concept of parties and say we need four hundred people to go into parliament, and we know that, and and let 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 a thousand people stand yeah. as independents. Yeah. So I mean, I and, and I, we'll I, vote in. That's what I was trying to say, but I wasn't trying. I wasn't trying to be quite as direct as you, which is which is to say that the electoral system is what you actually need. You need a structural electoral system reform that looks at how do we put in place the best people, not necessarily the best politicians, and those as we know are not necessarily the same things. So if you look at the House of Commons in the UK, they kind of have that. It's not perfect, but in the House of Commons in the UK, the people who represent a constituency go to the House and they speak on behalf of that constituency. When they don't do their job. They don't get to come back. The constituency kicks them out. So in 100%. this case, yeah, we're, we're in Auckland Park. Somebody yeah. would represent Auckland Park. 100%. In the country. 100%. Right up there. And if at a parliamentary level. she messes up here, they get kicked out from here and we replace that. That's place. it. Somebody who says, if you drive on Henley Road, these are the issues. Minister of Roads, what are you doing about the potholes on Henley Road? And, how, and how does that affect n- national issues, which... You know, a, a road in this area is one thing, but, but there are issues like healthcare, which is a good example of a massive. Yeah, you touch on it, right? Yeah. But in our research, what we found is a massive part of the problem with South Africa is the system of governance is what we call a concurrent governance model. So what that means quite simply is we, we live in one of the very few countries where you can have citizens protesting saying they don't want a premier and the president can't remove him because the president actually didn't appoint him. He was deployed by a political party. So the president of the country has to get away from his job as the president of the country, assume his job as the president of a political party, lobby the party to remove the person. I mean, that's nowhere else in the world would you find a CEO who can't fire a director 
of one of his supporting who's, who's lines. Undermining exactly. the it's just, it wouldn't happen, and that's that's what it means. So this concurrence business uh, governance model is the reason why in Dadimutswaledi, for instance, the Department of Health says that if there is a specific problem, he'll often say to you, "Have you consulted with MEC such and such?" Because he himself has limited powers. That's why we had, for instance, the very tragic goings-on of what happened with the uh, life as situation. situation. Because his, his hands, in effect, are tied. So you've, if you can deconstruct this concurrence governance model, which to do, you'd have to do something incredibly unpopular. Which is? Remove provinces. Why do we need provinces? So, so okay. Yeah, but I mean, why do we need provinces? So you need a national government because that sets policy. You need a local government because that delivers and executes what are the provinces for? It keeps lots of people employed. There's a, <laughs> I there's wouldn't, a, the I GA are fighting for who should be their nominee for the, for the Gauteng Premiership next year. I would Gauteng never dare say that, but, that but the, the case, exponential sorry. leader asks that question. The exponential citizen asks that question. Okay, but on the other hand, how will we, let's say your, your idea is right and people listening say, okay, check, we like it. Who's going to give up that power? Because ultimately, it is about the power. Isn't oh, it? nobody ever gives up power. That the the mm. lesson of history is that power is never given up; power is taken. And citizens have to make a decision about whether or not they're going to take their power, or they will continue to live in this in a situation where, I suppose, every four to five years, we vote on the basis of which T-shirt we're wearing and whether or not we're getting food parcels. But it's happening already, right? So if you look at fees must fall, for instance, fees must fall is young people saying you actually don't get an automatic pass. Just because you look like us doesn't mean mm, you get an automatic mm, pass. Mm, mm. It's young people saying, does the system work for me? Fees must fall is a ex- perfect example of exponential thinking. It's young people going, why are you making me pay to go to a higher education institution at the end of which I work and deliver value for the state and the state gets tax benefits from the work that I do? That's exponential thinking. Call Ashraf now, 891 more to come from uh, Vusi Tamakwaya. You can call in, of course, 0891-104207. So he described himself now as an entrepreneur, but he's written a book, and I suggest strongly that you need to get this book called The Magna Carta of uh, Exponentiality. Uh, and Magna Carta, very, very topical, I think, with our call to the Freedom Charter. You may want to check up why once you once you get the book. But it's all very much about business. So 891 If you tweet us, hashtag SFM Viewpoint, as per always, you can take me, Ashraf Garda, take SFM Radio. You can certainly take Vuzi as well. You'll, you'll pick him up on my timeline if you haven't followed him before. Okay, so that's on the political stuff. Just this quick thought then, because I want to talk business as well. What are your thoughts then about the current leadership in place? That's the political leader in terms of oh, uh, President come Ramaphosa. Come on, I think I asked you a while back whether you'd get into politics and some people said, well, <coughs> will you keep an eye on this guy? And this course, there's this, with no disrespect to the other political parties, there are two parties in opposition at this point in time, right? right? The DA and the EFF. What, what are your thoughts in terms of what's happening there with all three of them? So, wow. He's <laughs> <laughs> the big hitter. Yeah. I, see, I see why you didn't send the questions up front. Um, to understand the political parties, I think you've got to understand where South Africa is. So, South Africa is two countries in one. There is the South Africa that is probably listening to this conversation, which mm-hmm. understands English as a lingua franca. It is typically economically engaged. It is involved in the economy somehow. It works. It earns a living. It has access to credit. That South Africa is 35, maybe 40% of the country, if that. 
the remainder of South Africa is not in this space. And those are people who are indigent, who are downtrodden, who typically live in, the, in rural South Africa or peri-urban South Africa. They have no access to jobs, no access to opportunities. So these are the two South Africans in one. Mm-hmm. You can have a long theoretical conversation about how these two South Africans came to be. And I don't think it's fair to blame the current government for that. But I do think it's fair to say that they've had enough time to make a dent at this, in my humble opinion, have not done so sufficiently. But there's been attempts. That said, so if you want to understand the political parties, you then have to understand who's betting for who. The DA, in my humble opinion, is betting more for the South we're talking about, mm-hmm. yeah, which is the idea that the DA has of free enterprise, of, uh, of the market capital system, of this thing called uh, um, agency, which is to say that you make your own decisions, and of any, the best person for the best job. The best person for the best job is almost a cop-out in my view because mm-hmm. it presupposes that all of us had had the same opportunities to acquire the skills to become the best person. And we know that's not true. Which we know isn't true, agrees, yeah. right? So, so immediately at, at a philosophical level, your argument is, is flawed. But that's kind of what the DA bets. And I'm but concerned now on, by the way, I see in Joburg, for instance, the DA insourcing security guards, because if you read the DA's documentation, that's diametrically opposed to who the DA is. So I think even and there, ironically, the, the, the EFF tweeted to say that's part of our manifesto. Well done. You know, something along 100%. that line. So it's interesting. And I think what you will continue to see, this is the internal fight within the DA. This is why you're seeing the mm-hmm. Patricia DeLille situation happen. I think actually he won't admit it in public, but I think Moose is probably under a lot more political pressure than he'll let on, is because he himself is having to fight internally um, for what he believes to be the future of the DA versus what is the past of the DA. The past of the DA is as I've described it, and what I would imagine people like he want the future of the DA to be is a DA that is a bit more inclusive. Go to Cape Town. I mean, if you want to understand a stark reality of how apartheid still exists in 2018, and I say this with the greatest of respect, we've got Cape mm-hmm. Town listeners now, mm-hmm. you just fly, every time I fly into Cape Town and I go there every second week, <laughs> it's not hard to see on the freeway just who's to the on left which side, side of the freeway yeah. and who's yeah. on which, and, and by the way, depending yeah. on which side I'm looking at, I can tell you the skin color of those people. So, so you, you, that's, that I think is the, is the strategic quagmire the DA is locked in. The AFF, I think, is a lot more clear. It's a lot more clear about who it is. It's a lot more clear about who it fights for. Um, it's a lot more clear in its policies. Whether or not those policies would build a better South Africa, I think, is a different question. But you can't argue that they, at the very least, have a sense of clarity. And on a number of things, by the way, I agree with the EFF one, right? Mm-hmm. So I agree with their take on land. I agree with their take on structural exclusion and how you need to deconstruct the systems of exclusion. Just a quick note on this. My grandmother was arrested, my grand-aunt. She, the ANC in the, in the East Rand has an, a lecture in her honor. She was arrested in the late 70s, early 80s. She was imprisoned in what is today Constitution Hill, the women's okay. prison. Okay, over oh, here, yeah, right. Wow. That's right. Um, here's an interesting story. When she was arrested, the, the police kicked down the house, they kicked down the door, came to take her without a, a, a warrant. She went to a court and was kept in a jail without trial. The media ran a series of stories that were not true. So when we talk about deconstructing systems of exclusion, what it is to say is that the police and the courts and the media 
we're in cahoots. There is a system. And until you deconstruct systems of exclusion, why, for instance, in South Africa, it's not atypical for young black people to first buy a car because they buy a home. Do you want to know why? Mm, mm, because mm. it's harder to get a home from a bank than it is a car. So, so you don't even think along those lines? Yeah, because a car, they approve you in two hours. A bank, they ask for everything, and it takes them two months. Right. Yet it's a million rand car and a million rand. So, so to go back to, to, the, to the EFF, you're saying that some of the policies you agree with, right? Mm. Whether the policies are workable. And the point is that the EFF fights for structural inclusion, and that I 100% agree okay. with. The fact that they appear to have a clear vision yes. uh, in marketing speak or in business speak when yeah. you're looking for clients, would that, would that see them having greater gains? Because the downside of what people are talking about them is they've only moved from 6 to 7% in the last uh, municipal election. They haven't grown, <laughs> considering that they, they topped the social media space, they probably, they probably punch above their weight in terms of just general media voice more yeah. than anybody else yeah. and still unable to get that much higher. You know, it took 15 years for human beings to get onto the idea of sliced bread. 15 years. Sliced mm -hmm. bread existed and until Wonderland happened, which was the company that popularized the idea of sliced bread, human beings didn't buy it. The EFF went from 0 to 6% of the vote in 18 months, say 24 mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm. How many people do you know can launch a company in the most contested space? This, As a business person, that's how I think of it. You launched a company mm -hmm. in the most contested space, yeah, that's been around for eons with large players with massive balance sheets and you get 6% market share in less than three years. That's phenomenal. That you went from 6 to 7% in one year is neither here nor there. The question is where are they going to be in 15 years? That's and, really and, how you're going to look at it. And the answer to that is? Well, I think, for, I think much stronger. I, at, a, at a personal level, I think the DA is topped out. I think the DA is a 22% party. Best. I don't think it'll do better And, and we'll start dipping. I think it'll because, – because what will happen is the people to whom the message of the Democratic Alliance um, resonates, the people with whom it resonates, that number will decline. Okay. Uh, the ANC? The ANC is in a, is in a strategic quagmire. Because the ANC, for the longest time, has had probably the most important asset in its arsenal, which is that it is a broad church. Mm -hmm. The problem with a broad church is you have, not necessarily the problem, it's also the opportunity, is you have the communist and the business person in the same meeting. <laughs> However, when your opponent is either a communist or a business person, you can't be both. You've got to choose a side. So this is why on the one end you hear the ANC go away in a conference and say, yay for nationalization of land, yeah, or, or, or expropriation of land, yay for the nationalization of the Reserve Bank, but the ANC in government hasn't done anything to either expropriate land or take over the Reserve Bank. Because when you're in government, you are the ANC, and you saw what happened just this past week. Mm -hmm. You invite mm -hmm. a capitalist country like Switzerland through a platform like the World Economic Forum, which is a group of capitalists who meet about the global capital markets, to come into your country and tell you about how to build economies that work. But at the back end of it, you're talking about a socialist agenda like nationalization. And that's where the ANC is. It's struck in a structural quagmire, which is to say that things it popularly says to win the vote it knows are not necessarily the things you have to do to build a country. This is why, by the way, coincidentally, China is the country that it is, because China is not driven by democracy. So the Chinese leaders mm -hmm. can afford to do and say things that are unpopular, but in the long term will work. And, and But also not driven by, by their, their, their socialist or communist ideals. They sort of found a way. So do you think the ANC will, will – it has been a lot of that and will – continue to do a lot more of that to stay in power and will they therefore stay? I, th I think they'll be forced to. I think they'll be forced to s sit somewhere in that sandwich and sooner or later the ANC will come out with a complexion. The history of the ANC is such that it always finds a way 
to come out of its positions better than it was, right? And and I don't expect it to be any different. I just think this time they, it's going to take them much longer and they will suffer, they will bleed market share. Okay. It's interesting, you, you brought up the point of uh, the World Economic Forum. My, my guess is Vusi Timbakai, of course, right? In fact, we'll cross to the World Cup in just a second or so, well, a few, few seconds, in fact. Before I get there, the, the fact that you, we had the World Economic Forum guys here in South Africa, up to now, whenever we speak to people about economic disparity, it's yeah. like we need to get yeah. business working. Yeah. Business needs to employ people. We need to create more jobs. We yeah, need to be yeah. more entrepreneurial. Which won't happen. It won't happen. Okay. You're, yeah. You tell me, you're already selling. It won't happen. Why? No, it won't happen because, because businesses are driven by profitability. There's two ways to make more profit. Increase revenues or decrease costs. In a 0.4% growth economy, growth of revenues is almost impossible. The only way you grow your revenues is to eat your, your competitor's lunch. Very hard to do. So what you do is you drive down costs. One of the largest costs on an income statement is labor. And what's business been doing? Cutting down the cost of labor, either through outsourcing, as they started doing mm-hmm. 15 years mm-hmm. ago. That's why everybody was talking about labor brokers. And now more recently, through automation and roboticization. And it's happening. Just and that's going to even escalate further. Don't go it? to the McDonald's in Silverton. And the McDonald's in Silverton has introduced an automatic t- uh, teller where you can order your burger on a machine, not a human being. This is a McDonald's in Silverton. They've been doing it all over the country. Now, I say Silverton because nobody would imagine McDonald's in Silverton is automating processes. And this is McDonald's. Uh, Richard Brasher, who was the CEO of uh, uh, Pick and Pay, he used to run Tesco's in the United Kingdom, won the judgment recently. And he's going to be removing cashiers from the Pick and Pay. And you will go to the store. You will buy goods yourself. You'll put them in the package yourself. You will switch over the machine. You will swipe and you will walk out. What happens to the cashier and what happens to the person who's okay, the Okay, hold that thought for a second. What happens to them is really important. And I want to I I develop that story in terms of what, therefore, should business and government and those who are unemployed and employable do as well. The Viewpoint on SAFM. Right, chatting lots more to Vusi Temakoya. 891 if you wish to engage with us on air. Otherwise, if you're simply listening, that's absolutely fine. There are some people tweeting. <coughs> excuse me, and I'll check out those tweets in a second. Hashtag SFM Viewpoint when you do tweet. And then tag me, Ashraf Garda. Tag SFM Radio. Tag uh, Vusi Temakoya as well. That book, I don't want you to forget it, called The Magna Carta Exponentiality. And, and I know there's another book of yours coming up soon, right? Yeah, yeah. What's it called? Vossi. Oh, okay. <laughs> when somebody's made it, no surname as well. No, just Vossi. All right, there we are. <laughs> Let's go back to the problems of jobs then. So you saying business, the problem of jobs in terms of business now, what to do, what government can't do, you're saying they're not going to do so. Yeah. Not I, in any big numbers. No, no. And it's, uh, this is not a popular point of view, I've got to tell you. But... Uh, <laughs> History teaches us that jobs are a result, not an input. And what South Africa has tried to do is to distort the system by inputting jobs and getting economic growth. You input economic growth, you get jobs. Because there's now a demand in terms right, of the right. industry growing. Okay. There are also people who say, but we've had jobless growth, which is fair and well and true. The question to ask is, was there jobless growth? because the economy didn't need more jobs to grow or was there jobless growth because the growth in the economy was actually driven by the growth in capital markets and the answer is the latter 
right? So it's it's in effect been money moving around in the capital market system, not in the real economy that's driven this economic growth. I'm talking about real economic growth. The township I come from, Watville, around it is our industrial areas. So there are factories that have coal, there are factories that make geysers, mm. there are factories that make sinks. So my township is situated where it's situated because for generations, people in my family and many other families worked around those factories. But you have to build factories, then get jobs. You don't create jobs, then build factories. Mm, mm, mm. So if you want to answer the job question in South Africa, I think this is the question the exponential leader has to ask themselves, which is this. What is South Africa's competitive advantage? Anywhere in the world. When we go to the world and we say, this is South Africa, what is our competitive advantage? I've taken the trouble of reading the National Development Plan several times. And whilst it's a fantastic document and incredibly ambitious and all of the things that are in it are good, I still can't walk away with a single thing that we South Africans say, we're going to own these conversations. So the Kenyans and the Rwandans say, we want to own tech, right? Mm -hmm. Today, for instance, in Cape Town, the Kryptonians are saying, we want to own fintech. Mm -hmm. So many people don't know. Amazon has just set up a massive facility in in, in Cape Town Mm -hmm. because the Kryptonians have thought about how do we bring uh, Amazon and they've created jobs. But you've got to create the value and the jobs are a result. Until we have a value creation conversation, the job creation conversation for me is a non-starter. Okay, so, so here's the disappointing part. What is South Africa's competitive advantage you saying you don't know? Yeah, not only, and, and, and I don't and, hear and us, no, and it, I don't hear us talking about knows. it. Is it, it used to be our, it used to be our financial services, isn't it? Like it used to be yeah, our ba- banks banking, and the strength yeah. of our banks. But today, I don't know if you know this, I sit on the board of South African Venture Capital Association, so I work in the alternative asset classes, mm-hmm. and I can tell you for free, many f- fund managers are more likely to send up offshore structures in Mauritius than they are to set up in South Africa. Why? Because of the tax regime. Morocco, last year or year before last, created a district in Morocco where you can set up a financial services firm in Morocco and get uh, a temporary citizenship and get tax rebates for your organization. Yeah. All of it in the space of five days, they wow. can set you up because they're saying we're going after Safka's capital market system. So we're going to get eroded and lose that advantage. That gone, it clearly isn't mining because that's been an, an mm, industry mm, in decline. Mm. And it will be for a long time. I don't see that industry coming back. And it's not agri because we're not feeding that industry at the rate at which we need to. We, we're still not thinking strategically and about agro-processing. And geographically, that would be Dubai and those 100%. places. We're so out of that as well. It's not aviation. So what is, our, what is our competitive advantage? It's not global education. What is our competitive advantage? And you have to pick a competitive advantage because when you do, like most businesses, you choose what is your number one product. You can have five others, but you choose your number one product and you marshal all your resources to that number one product so you can get the customer introduced to the brand. And, and do I take it that, that even uh, from the president to economists linked to government, uh, in terms of this discussion on competitive advantage, not only do they not know, they, they're not even necessarily choosing the wrong competitive advantage. Yeah, meaning, yeah. meaning I, 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 for example, are people saying our competitive advantage is farming, even if you don't agree, yeah. but, they, but they're still saying we think that's what it's going to be. Are we not even talking about that? It, well, that's my point. My point is that it's not even in our conversation. I had the great privilege of being at an event and I had the privilege of asking the current president a question. And I asked him, I said, Mr. President, we have a foreign direct investment policy. What is our local direct investment policy? So pension funds, for instance, in South Africa, control close on 2 trillion rand. By the way, if you don't know, there are only f- only 4% of that amount of money goes to the black asset managers. 96% of it goes to traditional white asset managers. 
And so if you want to understand why there's still no capital flowing to black entrepreneurs, it's because there is no capital flowing to black asset managers who understand the plight of black entrepreneurs. That's why funds like ours exist. We're a black asset management fund mm-hmm. because we believe as black entrepreneurs, we understand the plight of black entrepreneurs. Okay, we- we're going to pick up on that. I want to get to some of the callers uh, as well. AB, stick around. I'll get to you in a minute. KGM, go ahead. Hi. Ashraf and Tamba, good evening. Yeah, and good, good evening to the listeners. Good, good talking to you, uh, KGM. Hi. All right. Interesting discussion, as always. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Look, gentlemen, the, the crux of the matter here, and I raised this matter many years ago as a young person. Uh, if you remember, Tamba, many years ago, the banks used to okay, have... It's, it's Vusi, just so you don't get it wrong, okay? Vusi, and the surname is Tamba Kwayo, right? Okay, go yes. ahead. Oh, yeah. sorry. <laughs> the, the, the banks used to use uh, human beings to assess uh, your credibility or lack thereof. And at some point I said, uh, but you as a banker, you have no cooking clue. You, you've never ran a business. Of course, you are a bank manager or you are a credit manager in the bank. But we're talking about the business that I, as an entrepreneur, knows the ins and outs of it. So the, the short analysis that I did, including the financial planning, that makes sense to me, practically. It doesn't make sense to the banker. Fast forward to now. Mm-hmm. We have politicians, with due respect to their responsibilities, politicians making business decisions. That's why you see most of them end up becoming overnight success stories or overnight businessmen. Now, they rubbish what your guest is talking about because they want the, the shortcut. They don't want to be there for a long haul. They feel, you know what, in politics, we, we speak and things happen. Why can't I do it in business? Hence, you see the, the, the rep tape exposes them at the later stage. But the solution, Ashra, is that even though your, your guest was very diplomatic about it. I think it's about time that we as South Africans generally, we take over different responsibilities of running this country. We, we cut our way in terms of our vision and we don't allow everything to be controlled and done by politicians. Until then, we can say whatever we want to say. Politicians will always mess up the good work that we do. Okay. Ashraf, thank you. KGM, as always, thank you for that contribution. Well, I'll get to other callers in a second. Perhaps you may want to just respond to that, uh, Vusi. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm on the record with this, and on this I'll be blunt and non-politically correct. The problem we've had in South Africa is bar people like Richard, Dr. Richard Mabonya, mm. who, by the way, mm. is the patron of our fund. And we, I, chose him as, yeah. mm. we, we chose him as the patron of our fund because he represents for us black enterprise and black entrepreneurship. Bar people like Dr. Richard Mabonya, Jabu Stone, even Herman Mashaba, we don't really have a class of black entrepreneurs for us to look up to. The reason that is is because the system of black economic trans, uh, e- empowerment, and I talk specifically about the mm-hmm. share share part, mm. all the other parts, management control, employment equity, enterprise development, great, must be done. But the, specifically the share transfer part, distorted market incentive. And what it did is it took people who had very little commercial acumen, but had the right political connections, gave them access to transactions of listed entities, raised capital from banks and free capital market systems to buy shares, sit on boards, look important, fly business class, and after five years, create hundreds of millions of rand worth of net, net, net value mm. without building businesses. So you've done it now for 20-something years. You've created a couple of really wealthy people, but you've not built new factories. So, You're so not making fact, new products. It's like promoting a, 
a kid from grade seven straight into varsity. Can I be candid? Yeah. Can I be candid? Mm-hmm. This is the lesson that we black people can learn from Afrikaners. And you know, the, the thing about Which the is past what? is you don't have to like it, but you can learn from it. The Afrikaners, when they took over from the British in 1948, did not have Afrikaner economic empowerment where they bought British companies. So they didn't buy an old mutual. They created a Santam. They didn't buy a Momentum. They created a Sunlum. They didn't buy a first a Standard Bank. They created Rand Merchant Bank Investment Holdings, which then became First National Bank. And the reason it's called First National Bank is because it was the first bank funded by the National Party. Mm-hmm. First National Bank. They created Falskas and Trucks Trust Bank and many others, which became APSA. They didn't buy somebody else's. They built their own. Every time I say this, people want to come at me from a thousand directions, but the evidence is clear to see. And so the Afrikaners are now sitting going, hold on, hold on, hold on. Why do you want to take, build your own? But we've not done it. And we've lost a decade, two and a half decades, isn't it, of time and opportunity because we chose rather for the quick path as opposed to really building underlying businesses. Okay, so can it still be done? Because 20 years later, there's, there's, uh, and I will get to some of the other callers in a second. It's hard. There's a, there's a greater degree of impatience, understandably so. Yes, right? yes. And young people are saying, no, it's enough now. We're not interested. I work with entrepreneurs every day. And let me tell you, you want to see real impatience? Black entrepreneurs are growing incredibly impatient. Because here's what the white companies have done. They go and they do a BE deal with Ashraf. They mm-hmm. say, we're now 51% black owned. What they don't tell the market is Ashraf didn't have the money to buy the share. So they did a vendor finance deal. And over five years, Ashraf will use his dividends flow to pay back the capital. But on day one, they become level one BE compliant and they start getting access to government tenders. So in effect, the black shareholder, Ashraf, actually is not getting any wealthier. He's got a way to pay down these shares. The white company continues to make money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's got debt, in Mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. The white companies continues to make money and grow in revenues. And real black entrepreneurs can't access those opportunities because they're competing with a white company that's empowered. So you got to choose. This is the point. you got to choose. The exponential person, citizen, and leader looks at this and goes, we actually have to choose. Do we want to build black businesses or do we want businesses that are black empowered? Because with the greatest of respect, you can't do both. And yours is we want to build black businesses. Oh, yeah. I fight, okay. I fight squarely for okay. that. Let's get, let's get further calls. A.B. from Cape Town. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. It's a long time. Man, I've listened to a lot of you people, learned people, people yeah. speaking about the economy. Mm-hmm. I can assure you this. It's a young guy. I travel throughout the globe. I'm hardly educated by interest in these kinds of uh, issues. When can you tell me, you learned peoples, when was the land the strongest? Hmm? Can you tell me? I can say it in the party in South Africa. That's a given, I right? Can bo- I can tell you. The port- Na- bottom line to that? 1967. For your 10 rand, you got 18 American dollars. That was in the heart of apartheid. And don't think for one minute that apartheid was only here in South Africa. Okay, uh, Abby, I want, I want to move on because yeah, I want, you to, I want you to get to the bottom of what, what, what's the lesson to learn? What's the lesson to learn from that, Abby? I want to just ask you that. Yes. I can tell you one. There's a lot of bamboozle and contextus from the so-called elite and industrial countries. And it's high time that we moved away. Because I can tell you, my ancestors were business people long before they. That's why they invaded and stole those people. No, so what finally I want to tell you this. Even our children, teach them this. They must start going on their own and get away from this capitalist system. Because... 
They only got one objective in mind, and you can see that in the leading so-called stolen states of America, their mindset. Okay, we're going to talk about America, by the way, after 9 o'clock, and you're going to enjoy that. Uh, Donald Trump's foreign policy, and I know you have strong views on the USA. AB, thanks for that call. Let's get, an, let's get another call there. Um, Aristas from, from Woodbank. Hi, welcome to the show. What's your viewpoint? Hi, and, uh, and listening to you speak, so you're such an inspiration. I know I used to watch on the other program where people will come up with business ideas, and you will tell this is going to work and this is not going to work. But now the truth is, the government is not listening. They're doing their own thing on the other hand. And yet other people, they want to revive the economy. For example, if you look at the savings delivery, our own people are destroying this country to its non-existence. How do we revive the township economy? How do we mm. open businesses? Mm. When they're angry, there's no savings delivery. They're destroying everything. They're looting the shops and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, got that. Thank you. Uh, Respond to those? Yeah. Uh, so the first question, the first comment, I, 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 I can sense is frustration, mm-hmm. but I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that exchange rate or the strength of the rand equals the strength of the economy. If that were the case, the second largest economy on earth is China, and quite the contrary, they've deliberately pegged their currency below what it can be. So, so I sometimes you can manipulate it to a lower level and yeah, people do I, that. I mean, there, I think economic prowess is economic prowess. Exchange rate is exchange rate. These two things are not the same. And I think you, you need to decide if you want to go on holiday cheaply, which is we want a strong rand, or you need to decide if you want to build a growing economy, and that's different to wanting a strong rand. I think because market analysts every day talk about the rand to the dollar, Mm. people presuppose that the rand to the dollar is an indicator of anything other than the exchange rate. It isn't really. I mean, the exchange rate is driven by a variety of things. It's driven Mm. by Mm. capital flow. It's driven by uh, balance of payments. It's driven by sentiment in the market at a point in time. There are a thousand considerations. It's not just economic strength. I am worried about economic strength, right? And it might... So how do we measure economic strength? Well, economic strength is about GDP. Economic strength is about the growth in your GDP. Economic strength is also about your labor productivity rate and what those labor productivity rates look like. So in in South Africa, we teach a lot about macroeconomics. We teach a lot about microeconomics. I, when I was in the UK, for instance, for two years, studied mesoeconomics. And mesoeconomics, macro is the the country, yeah. Uh, Micro is the firm. Meso is the industry. And what we're learning, actually, from new economic theory is that the industry is where the rubber hits the road. You've got to build industries, not firms. You've got to build... Uh, you've got to have, for instance, uh, policies that encourage the birth of industries and incentivize industries, and then firms will emerge. You know, if you try and get a fairly decent programmer in Cape Town today, he's going to bill you in dollars. Do you want to know why? Because the Kiptonians built a great industry of techies who work for Silicon Valley firms. So when you come to him from Joburg, he's charging you Silicon Valley prices. I think the same with Bangalore in India, right? Exactly yeah, right. Okay, so built industries not firms. If you build industries and policies that are aligned to creating industries, the firms will emerge. The entrepreneurs will emerge. Entrepreneurs are there. They're there. They just need you to make the environment right. favorable. Okay. Hashtag action against poverty. Regardless of race, background, or age, this Mandela Month, play your part and give 67 minutes of your time to the less fortunate. My power of persuasion is sufficient. I have wielded power as a prisoner without occupying any position. And Mr. De Klerk, I had to recognize that. We have taken decisions and forced him to use his legal powers. We gave him an ultimatum that he must appoint a judicial commission to investigate the question of violence. He must dismiss a certain two ministers. 
And he came out and he said he would never do that. We embarked on massacre. He was forced to do exactly what he said he would never do. SAFM says, stand up and play your part to contribute to Mandela Day for the betterment of the country. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. Our big hitter for the night, Vusi uh, Temakwaya. We'll chat to him up to uh, 9 o'clock. Then we'll talk about another person. You can call him a big hitter, I don't know. Donald Trump and, and his foreign policy. We'll talk about that uh, after 9 o'clock. Vusi, let's talk about land. You said you, you agree with many of the policies of the EFF. Not, not very specific, but you're worried about how it will work out in practice. Let's talk about the land issue. And you said, I think you did say you, you, you support it, right? 100%. What, what, what's your position? Yeah, look, uh, 100%. I think... Uh, I think the issue is long overdue. I think so. I've taken a long time to get really educated on this issue, and mm-hmm. and I myself have come quite a long way from where I started off. But I I think the issue is long overdue. I think the EFF is right to put the issue on the agenda. I think the government has taken too long with it. I think that uh, Section Twenty Five of the Constitution gives the necessary powers for the government to do what it needs to do. You actually don't need. And, and what, what should it do? Well. So, so there's well, I think the fr- historical well, issue of land, there's a demand from people. 100%. Uh, I think there are a couple of things you've got to do, and mm-hmm. Kaiser Tolle speaks about this a lot more fluently than I can. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to peg the price, which means if I go to Ashraf and I say, this is my piece of land, and Ashraf goes through a process that takes us 10 years at the land claims, the reason it takes 10 years is because in 10 years the value of the land has gone up and Ashraf mm-hmm. dragged the process out on purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what you've got to do is you've got to peg the price at the instance of the claim, not the instance of the, of the disbursement. This is the first thing you've got to do. The second thing you've got to do is you've got to start working through a process of decluttering the land claims process so you can get m- as m- many more of these out of the way. The third, which is probably the most important, is you've got to say to the people who go to the land claims court that if we get to a point where you guys are not agreed, we will expropriate. Because what you will find then is that the owner of the land will be far more agreed to getting rid of the land at a reasonable price than not getting rid of it at all or delaying the process so that they can profit from it. Okay, so and therefore expropriation without compensation? Yeah, absolutely. Look, look. remember what the Constitution But you're suggesting says. that happens after the event. Yeah, because In an ideal cons- situation, you want someone who has a claim to come to me and say, we have a claim on that land that you own. Actually, it's my great-grandfather's. Well, what? And, and, and I'll... And I'll pay you so much to take to because to what, get the it back. Cons- what the constitution says is you expropriate without land on the instance that there has not been an agreement between the two parties. So I'm not sure what everybody is getting up in the harp about. People still have to sit and, con- and converse and agree. And if we don't, then the government has the option to expropriate without land, particularly if the owner of the land or erstwhile owner of the land asset is being unreasonable with their demand. And I think you need that stick. Otherwise, you're going to have look, guys, read the constitution. The land claims court was foreseen to be a five-year project. We're 25 years in. What's that tell you? It's not that we don't have an issue of land claimants. It's that you have a stalling of the process by the landowners and a profiting from the process by some public servants who are distorting it so that at the exit point they can get as much money as possible and profit from it. And would these public servants then be people who are in, in political power right now? Oh, yeah, some of them. R- ruling party, I mean... Some of them, especially in some of those more rural provinces, you're finding people who are deliberately stalling the process so that they can profit from it, right? And it's it's a pity, but any time you have a system that that enables for manipulation, people manipulate the system. Interesting. You you said that you know your your views have changed somewhat. I hope I, if I've got I've got you correctly yeah. around land. Uh, I've got one of the documents saying land ownership does not translate to balance sheet. Yeah. 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 Is, is, yeah, yeah, is your yeah. position I mean, different? No, Explain that, this. That's, still, this that's still very clear. I mean, very simple, very simple. 
do quantitative economics, what they call econometrics. Until the end of the 16th century, uh, over 90% of global wealth set resident in land as an asset. What that means is the wealthiest people on, on earth held most of their wealth in land. Today, that number is less than 5%. So the wealthiest people on earth hold less than 5% of their wealth in land. The reason that is is because we've now got far more sophisticated instruments of holding wealth. You've got equities, you've got bonds, you've got capital markets, you've got offshore structures. So all I'm saying is we can... You've got, you've got Facebook and Google that comes to mind immediately. Exactly. And there's no land, right? There's no land. Just go read the... So, so are we not... Read I the mean, balance sheet of, a, of, a, are of we Google. Not, I mean, are, are the politicians that, that you may even praise, are, are they not barking up the wrong tree? Should it not be that we want redress... But in fact, we don't necessarily need land anymore. What I'm With the fourth industrial revolution, 100%, we want something else. 100%. You got it. So what I'm saying is, don't presuppose that land transfer or land ownership transfer equals economic wealth transfer. These are not the same things. You can do land ownership transfer, and in fact, you must do it because it's the right thing to do. But to have an economic conversation about the right thing to do is a bit of a red herring. When people say, well, you know, look, if you take back the land, what happens to all the farms. What do you mean what happens to all the farms? You can take the land ownership. It doesn't mean you have to take the farming. I can take the land. I just mm -hmm. keep the same farmer on it and he can pay me a lease or a rental for me to own the land. So there are modalities about how we need to do this. And I just think South Africans need to be be careful and think more critically. But what I was saying there specifically is we need to transfer land ownership 100%. We should not presuppose that the transfer of land ownership is an unmasked transfer of wealth. There will be some transfer of wealth, but we will have a long way to do still, particularly in the new economies of the third and fourth industrial revolution. Okay, because I mean, we spoke earlier about the uh, unclarity around the uh, uh, you know, a, a competitive advantage South Africa has. Yet the president has made the point about the fourth industrial revolution and they bought yeah. into that. What that means for South Africa, we don't know. <coughs> should therefore... You know, a claimant start making a claim around, and it's something imaginary. So I actually don't want land, but 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 give me a stake in a in a tech based company <laughs> because I see wealth there. Well, so I'll tell you I'll, I'll tell you what we're doing. So we in our firm we've created this project called Project Two Four Nine. We're putting up Two Four Nine because there are two hundred forty nine municipalities in South Africa. We're putting up hubs in each of these municipalities. One municipality a hub. We got our first one going up in Toyando in Limpopo. Why? Because I want to go deep rural. And in that hub, we're going to be doing some education, some enterprise training. We're going to be giving some accredited training and courses to entrepreneurs. Because I believe, ultimately, that the way I empower that person is by giving them opportunity, giving them skill, giving them education, and they typically will do the rest. So to answer your question about this land thing, transfer it because it's the right thing to do. But if you want to build economies, you still have a lot of work to do. Let me want to sell it. We've got 30 seconds. Yeah. Quick thought on the immigrants, the new wave of immigrants, Somalians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, can we learn something from that? 100%, and we must. You know are, what are we learning something? No, we're not, because, because we're blinded by our own prejudice. And what you've got to learn, actually, is very simple. You've got to learn about grit. You've got to learn about lowest cost margin businesses. Yeah? You've got to learn about how do you treat the customer fairly so you can keep them coming back. That's what we learn from those businesses. Are there some of them that break the law? I'm sure. There are most business people in most countries that break laws. It's not, oh, we haven't it's not uncommon. Right? We'll get you in again. We'll have a debate on entrepreneurship <laughs> some other time. Okay? Uh, but for now, your time's up. Feel free to tweet however, all the things you've said and that book you need to get, The Magna Carta of Exponentiality and the other one simply called Vusi. I haven't even asked him what's it about because when the book comes up, we'll certainly talk to him about it. Great chatting to you as always. Thanks for your time. You're a rock star. And you friend. guys can Thank follow me, me, the rock star of, well, of Vusi Tembukayo and all that, right? <laughs> it's nine o'clock. Let's get the news.